So in our series of unsung heroes, we've been looking at different uh, unsung heroes of the Bible, heroes who may not initially come to mind as heroes, but who played a role in showing us Christ or in being used by God to provide for his people. We've looked at Abigail and Tamar and Miriam so far, and today we'll be looking at Mary Magdalene. Mary has always been a a bit of a curiosity for present-day readers of the Bible. She's present, but we don't have a lot of details concerning her, and so much is left to the imagination. Some argue that uh, she was a prostitute. Others, like author Dan Brown in his best-selling novel, The Da Vinci Code, believe that she was Jesus' lover. Another trope that I have seen for Mary is that she is the one that gets it. While the disciples sit around and try to figure out what in the world Jesus means by half the things that he says, she's the one that's able to parse uh, the words of the Savior, the teacher, and the rabbi. Many different approaches have been taken in trying to figure out this Mary Magdalene character. But the approach that we will take this morning is one of a bit more simplicity. We're going to resist the urge to fill in the blanks that have not been given, And we are going to concentrate on what we have been given. We're going to follow her story in Scripture. That being the case, we're going to kind of be jumping around through a couple different passages and and even a few different books as we look at this unsung hero of the Bible. We're going to start with Mary's introduction in Luke chapter 8, which we find in verses 1 to 3. If you have your Bibles with you, you are welcome to turn there and to follow along. But if not, that's cool. The words are going to be on the screen behind me. We read the word of the Lord together this morning. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. After this, Jesus traveled from one town, about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. Mary was from the town of Magdala which rested on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. We don't know anything really about her backstory or her family from the text. What we do know is that she had a horrible affliction. She was possessed by seven demons. Now, we aren't told when exactly her exorcism took place within uh, the, the scope of Christ's ministry. We just are told that it does. We just know that this is something that happens, that this is something that he does. Now, Mary could have done anything with her newfound freedom. I'm reminded of the ten lepers who, when Jesus cured them of leprosy, went to celebrate with their families, and only one returned to even thank his healer. But even that one returned to his family right after. There wasn't some obligation that if Jesus healed you, that you had to travel with him and listen to his teachings. Mary followed Jesus because she wanted to. Her gratitude for the change Jesus brought in her life, the healing that he gave her, pulled her out of her regular day-to-day. 
But she and the other ladies mentioned in the text did more than just travel with Jesus and his called disciples. I use the term called disciples to refer to the 12 disciples that we typically think of when we think of Jesus and his disciples, right? Peter, John, Andrew, Matthew, Judas, those guys. They were the ones that Jesus called by name and join, to, to come and join him. But as Jesus was teaching and healing, there were many more that began to follow him. It wasn't just the 12. Mary and these ladies were part of that, that larger group who were considered disciples as they were being discipled by Jesus. They just weren't the called 12. Now these ladies that we meet in Luke 8, 1 to 3 also, as the text tells us, helped support them. So they weren't just following Jesus. They helped support Jesus and his disciples out of their own means. So these ladies basically bankrolled Jesus' preaching tour. They made sure that Jesus, his disciples, and all those with them had food to eat, water to drink when needed, and a roof over their heads. Though they were not called disciples, they played a huge role in Jesus' ministry. And man, there's something awesome about a good, like, side character, isn't there? I love books and movies largely because I love a good story. And in a good story, you've got to have a strong lead character, the, the person that the story is about. A strong lead is number one, but a close second is solid side characters. They aren't the reason the story is being told, but they make the lead character more relatable. How the side characters respond to the lead role helps us know how we too should respond to the lead role. The main character in The Sandlot, a movie about baseball and growing up in suburban America, is Scotty Smalls. Scotty's a great character. He's a boy who doesn't really know how to fit in. He's a bit of a nerd, a loner, and he's moved to a new place and is looking and trying to make some new friends. Now, we may be able to relate to Scotty just through that brief introduction, but we get a deeper, we see deeper elements of who Scotty is through how he interacts with Ham and Squints, Timmy and Tommy Timmons, yeah, yeah, and of course, Benny the Jet Rodriguez. It's often the side characters that show us the depth of the personality of the lead role. How the lead acts towards the side characters is one layer, but how the side character responds to the lead is an even deeper layer. And that's what we see in the relationship between Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Mary's thoughts and beliefs about Jesus are echoed in her actions. She is faithful to him. She believes that he is who he says he is. In John 6, uh, verses 66, right after Jesus has, has given some hard teachings, many of his disciples, many of those following him, they turn back and, and they leave. They're like, this is too much, man. Your teachings are too hard. We can't really deal with this anymore. We were here for like the free food. We're digging like all of the teaching. This is nice. The healing, thanks for that. I appreciate it. That was great. But now your teachings are just a little bit too hard. It's just a little too close to home. I just can't quite really deal with this, so I'm out. Thanks for the laughs. Thanks for the good time. I'm done. We'll see you later. A bunch, many of Jesus' disciples left after some of his hard teachings. Mary is not one of them. She sticks it out. She stays with him. She does not leave him. She will not abandon him. We see even this highlighted even more as we look at Jesus' death. When, Je when the time comes, and Jesus is betrayed, 
judged and condemned, many of Jesus' followers, his disciples, including the called twelve, right? Including those dudes, they flee. They run. They have just seen what happened to their teacher and friend. All these dudes showed up in a, in a, in a garden with swords and pitchforks and torches. And they're like, all right, you, you're coming with us. And he gets put on trial. And they're like, yeah, we ain't got time for any of that. Like, we're done. We're not doing this. We see this particularly played out in Peter. The most passionate of Jesus' disciples who, out of fear for his own safety, three times denied even knowing the man who had spent the last three years with him, investing in him, training him, and discipling him. And so as Jesus is dying on the cross, we see that many of his closest friends were nowhere to be seen. We read in John 19.25 that those who were there on that terrible day, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Despite the danger, and though she had no familial relationship with Jesus, they weren't family, they weren't related by blood, there stood Mary Magdalene. I can't imagine how hard it was for her to watch Jesus suffer in the way that he did, but she did not leave him. I would think it would have been dangerous that there could have been some pretty intense social backlash due to Mary's presence near the cross. Not just because she showed such public support of someone who had been sentenced to a death reserved for the worst of society, but there was the danger the other disciples feared, the danger of guilt by association. None of these dangers stopped Mary from being there for Jesus. Though it posed a great risk for her to be there, she would not abandon him in this, the hardest day and time of his life. And we see in Mark 15, 47, that even after he has died, Mary does not abandon him. For in this text, we read that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. The graveside service for Jesus was not very well attended. We don't read of any of the disciples being present. We don't see the crowds that he fed and taught gathered around his tomb in sorrow. We see Joseph, a Jewish leader, a prominent member of the council, but one who had come to faith and was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, the owner of the tomb in which Jesus was laid. And with Joseph, we see his mother. And the only other name we are given is that of Mary Magdalene, faithful to the end. And that gives us a glimpse into the impact that Jesus had on her life and her response to that impact, the devotion that it is planted in her continues to confirm for us who Jesus is. The faithfulness of Mary Magdalene tells us of the Savior. And it was this devotion of Mary's, this love for her teacher, that sent her to his grave after the Sabbath. We continue reading in Mark chapter 16. We'll read verses 1 to 7. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on, the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And they entered the tomb. They saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. 
You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead. Go and tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So now we see that the woman who had followed Jesus through thick and thin, had been there at his death and had been present at his funeral, would be the first to tell the world of his resurrection. What a privilege. What an honor. How excited must Mary Magdalene have been in those moments? As I have pondered this week the story of Mary Magdalene and her relationship with Christ, I have been convicted about my own relationship with the Lord. Often when we hear Bible stories, we want to put ourselves in the shoes of the hero. We want to be the main character, right? When we hear the story of David and Goliath, man, we want to be David, the one who saves the people from the giant tyrant. When we hear the story of Esther, we want to be the brave and beautiful heroine who saves her people from certain death. When we hear the stories of Noah and Daniel and Joseph and Ruth, We want to be the ones who do the right thing and are celebrated for it. We want to be the main character. What we fail to realize in the stories of all the great heroes in Scripture is that we are not reflections of them, but that they are reflections of Jesus. And we are the ones being saved. We are the Israelites that Jesus saves in the story of David. We are the Israelites that Esther saves in the story of Esther. Though we want to be the hero, we are the ones in constant need of saving. But that doesn't stop us from trying to be the main character. And in so doing, we make God the side character in our story. Anyone else like guilty of this in their life? The business of of the day, the stress of the week causes us to just sideline Christ and focus on the problems that we feel like we need to take care of. Our devotional time is somehow easier to cut than our our time spent binging TV shows. We get focused on the things that we want to do, the things that we want to accomplish in life, while the things that God has called us to do take a back seat. We sideline God's call to mission so that we might earn more money, look good to our peers so that we might be perceived the way that we want to be, the way we feel we deserve to be by society. We sideline Christ so that we might be the hero of our story. Anyone else relate to that? Anyone else tend to put themselves above God in the story of their lives? It doesn't take long for me to recognize that I am not a very good hero. I lose my temper when I know that I should stay calm. I send out words that I wish I could take back. I may start with good intentions, but man, am I exceptionally talented at dropping the ball. I hurt people unintentionally. Sometimes I hurt people intentionally. As I sit back and look at how talented I am at messing things up, I recognize that I make a much better anti-hero than I do a hero. And so I run back to Christ and I promise to put him first in my life, promise to recognize him for the hero that he is. And for a time, I might be successful. But inevitably, I find myself once more climbing up onto the pedestal 
and putting my Lord and Savior on the sideline of my life. Anyone else relate to that? How are you doing with that? Man, am I thankful for the love of God. And oh, how thankful I am for the faithfulness of Christ. He knew that his children would sideline him and try to steal his glory. And he still chose to become man to live here on this broken planet and deal with hunger, thirst, bug bites, horrible smells, and skinned knees. He knew that we wouldn't fit, be perfectly faithful to him. And still he took that cross up the hill to Golgotha and allowed himself to be nailed to it. He knew that we were unworthy of his sacrifice, and still he took all of the sin in all of the world upon his shoulders, becoming sin for us and taking the punishment for sin in our place. There on the cross, Jesus paid the ultimate price. He died not for the sin that he committed, for he was perfect, but for the sin that we have committed. This is how great his love for us is. But he did not stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. And when we believe in him, when we trust in him and his finished work on the cross on our behalf, the Bible tells us that we are clothed with Christ, that our sinful rags have been taken, and we have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. This, this is our hope. This is the promise of God, that when we believe in him, we are made right with him because of the work of Christ on the cross. This is the depth of God's love for us. That while we were still sinners, while we still had him on the sidelines, or while we were pushing him off the pedestal of our life, while we were still trying to make everything about us and how, every, how awesome we want to be, Christ died for all of this. And he did all of this knowing that we would sideline him still. God knew that we would not be able to love him as he deserves to be loved. That we would not be able to respond to him as he demands. That we would fail in loving and appreciating Jesus perfectly. And still he loved us enough to make payment for these exact failures and oh so many more. This is the depth of God's love for us. And there is nothing that we can do to make God love us less. Despite how we have sidelined him, his love for us is unchanged. And that's one of the things that I love about the life of Mary Magdalene. In Mary's love and devotion to Jesus, we see a reflection of God's love for us. When life got real and many of the people that followed Jesus left him, Mary didn't. And when life gets real... And the people that we thought we could count on, they might leave us or not be there for us in the ways that we want them to be or feel that we need them to be. Know that God never leaves us. And when life got hard and Christ was on the cross, Mary was there. When we are in the throes of suffering, when we are in pain, when we are hurting, when we feel alone, when the sorrow of our current experience overwhelms us and we begin to wonder if joy is even real or attainable, know that God will not abandon you. He goes through it all with you. 
Though others will leave, he is ever-present, and he is suffering with you. God cannot quit you. And when things are good, when the sun is out and new life has come, God is there with us too. He joins us in the celebrations of life. When we get that job that we had hoped for, when we welcome a new member to the family, when the sun is out and the birds are singing, when we hear that song we love, when the beat drops, when we are sitting around laughing with friends, when we are eating a delicious meal, when we are eating a not-so-delicious meal, when we have a good cup of coffee in our hands and the smell of bread baking in the oven wafts through the house, God is there too. God loves to celebrate even the simple joys with us. Church, I pray that you would be able to see yourself as God sees you. As we sit in our failures and our pain, we can feel alone and unloved. We can feel rejected and unneeded, and the enemy is exceptionally talented at making us feel unlovable. As depression and anxiety and the opinions of others wash over us, may we see ourselves as God sees us. Someone that he loves so dearly, someone that he created in his own image, just the way that we are. Someone that he was willing to die for that he might have a relationship with. God couldn't think more of you. You are so precious to him. I'm thankful for the character of Mary Magdalene. I'm thankful for her devotion to Christ, and I'm thankful for how she reflects Christ's devotion to me. You guys, our God is so good. What a fantastic, loving, gracious, merciful, and faithful God we serve. 